We're in this teaching series going through 1 Peter. The teaching series is called Exiles. Uh, One of the main concepts that Peter wants the people that are receiving his letter over what was then called Asia Minor, but now is called Turkey. Uh, He wants them to understand that, that there's this sense where living in this world means that you're feeling a little bit like an exile. Like you're not quite at home because your home is not yet fully here because Jesus hasn't returned and made all things new. So there's this exile feeling that every Jesus follower should experience. And that's why we're calling it exiles. It's what Peter wants to communicate to these people that have received this letter. And so we're going to be going through chapter one, verses three to 10, but we're going to be doing it in bite-sized bits so that we can really zero in on the specific words and verses that we'll be going through. And we begin in chapter 1, verse 3, and it reads this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this is the very beginning of the book. And at the very beginning of the book, he says, praise be to God. Now, praise, you might go with me on this. Praise typically is a response. But here's the beginning of the book. He's beginning with praise. Why does Peter begin with praise? Praise is often a response. It's something that you do because something else was done. You might get a really great back massage from your spouse. And you might turn to them in a moment of kind of just intimacy and connection and say, thank you for that back massage. That would be praise. That'd be praise. No, I don't think it's funny. All right. It's because you guys haven't had a really good back massage, apparently. You might get a good response on a test. You might get like 100% on a test and the teacher might write something kind on that and, and, and you get it back and, and it makes you smile, a little gold star, and that's praise. That's essentially praise. If you flip over the back of a book, sometimes it will have little, little recommendations of the book. Be praise for the author. This is all in response to something. The author has written something good. The back massage was great. The test was well done. So we praise in response. But here at the beginning of the letter, Peter is praising before there is something signifying. It's not a response. It's beginning with praise. Why is Peter beginning with praise? It's because this. Peter is so aware of what God has done that he can begin with praise. He doesn't have to wait for the evidence of God's blessing. He knows what God has already done so he can begin his day with praise. He can begin his letter with praise. He can live with praise. And so the invitation for us is this. The invitation is for us to know what God has done like Peter knows what God has done so we can in turn begin with praise rather than wait for the evidence of God's blessing. Oh, God really came through here. I'm going to praise him in response. We can praise him before the blessing. We can praise him before the evidence of his grace, knowing what he has done, even though there might not be evidence there in that moment. Okay. Two of the things that Peter dials in on for the rest of this passage uh, is the, really the reason why he is, he is praising. He's thinking about these things. Then he shares these things. The two things are what I'm calling the incomparable riches. And then second is the resi- resilient joy. Incomparable riches. Some of you in your head said it's pronounced incomparable. And I say it's not. It's incomparable. Don't show me what Google says. I don't care. In my head, it says incomparable. So 
Let's just call it incomparable for right now. We can have a conversation in the lobby afterwards if you want to. Incomparable. Incomparable riches. Peter has his mind on what God has done. He's beginning with praise, but then he turns to talking about these incomparable riches that every Jesus follower is a recipient of. Verses four and five reads like this, describing these incomparable riches. If you have your Bible open, you can look at it. I want you to underline or focus on this word inheritance. It's, it's a word we're going to be returning to. But it says, in his great mercy, in God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are all these prepositional phrases for those of us who like English. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance, continuing to talk about the inheritance, is kept in heaven for you through faith, are sh- though, uh, through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay. This word inheritance, this is the word that signals the incomparable riches that we have received as Jesus followers or that you are are welcome to receiving if you're not yet a Jesus follower. The inheritance. Now, it means the same thing in the first century as it did in in our current century. That you've been written into a will uh, of a person who has great resources and they're depositing something to you uh, as, as a gift. Something you didn't work for. It's just it's a, something you're inheriting. Now, this is not physical inheritance like you might have from a family member that's passing away and, on, and has written you in the will. This is something uh, slightly different. Well, it's incredibly different, but it's, it's parallel. It's a spiritual inheritance. The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Think about that. That everything that is Christ's is yours. Why? Because of what Christ has done. By Christ's loving sacrifice on the cross, you have been written into the will of the divine so that everything that is Christ's is yours and everything that is yours is Christ's, meaning that he has taken all of that stuff in your life that you've been trying to sweep underneath the rug. He's taken that on his own shoulders and given you his access to the Father, given you his, the power of the Spirit, given you a right relationship with a holy God. This is your inheritance that will one day show up in a really strong form. Now we taste the appetizers of it, but one day it says it's kept in heaven for you, you'll be able to really, really, really know the incomparable riches. Now we know in part, then we will know as we are fully known. Inheritance. Peter calls it, it's unperishable, unspoilable, unfading. Francis Baer, the Bible scholar, says the inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It's compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. I remember uh, when I was a new follower of Jesus, uh, I remember having a conversation with a mentor. I remember <laughs> I didn't know what a, a mentor was. I had to be told what a mentor was. Somebody was, uh, my friend was, was in a mentor relationship and I was like, well, what even is a mentor? He goes, well, I think it's somebody, you know, you, you drink coffee with and you read the Bible with. And I was like, that sounds good. I should probably get one of those too. So I got a mentor and I, and I was hanging out with my mentor. It's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. 
hanging out with this mentor. We were talking about scripture. A friend of our, mutual friend of ours, who happened to be an atheist, sat down and we were all sitting together and we started talking about how can you can find joy in difficult circumstances. And we were all talking about it. And I, my, my mentor said, that the main reason I'm able to find joy in difficult circumstances is because I know that I am the object of God's love and affection and that no thing fashioned by human hands or happens in any newsfeed can take that away from me. So I can find joy in any circumstance. Do I need to grieve? Yes. Do I need to lament? Yes. Is, are those things normal and parts of life? Is sorrow real? Yes. But is joy a possibility in any situation? Yes. My friend who is the atheist, our mutual friend, looked at my ment the mentor in the eyes and said, well, that's a neat psychological trick. I wish I had the ability to flip that little psychological switch too. And my friend looked back. And honestly, when he said that, it kind of threw me against... Threw me back a little bit, put me on my heels. I, I was young in my faith and I'm like, oh my gosh, is that what I've been doing? Is it just a psychological trick? The mentor responded in classic mentor fashion. He said, it would be a psychological trick if it wasn't true. And then I realized that this, is, it, it, this was true. It was, it was true. It was real. This inheritance is something of incredible significance. Annie Dillard, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, describes Christians as a funny lot. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs, that's the early Christians that were persecuted, outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible enough. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does not one, no one person really believe really, really a word of it? The, church, it's, the churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT on a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews. And when you think about it, think about the words we say. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's resurrected from the dead. There is a spiritual battle of which God has already won, but it is still taking place and it involves our souls. That is some powerful charged language. And we kind of walk by as it's like an aisle in a store. We treat as casual what scripture calls sacred. And part of the reason is sometimes maybe overexposure. If you've grown up in the church, you know the Bible verses. You can repeat them without thinking about it sometimes. Or sometimes it's, we're so connected to everything that isn't spiritual that we really lose track of the reality of what is spiritual. Either way, we treat as casual oftentimes what God calls sacred. And so, because of that, we really can't appreciate the incomparable riches that we are recipients of. So what I want to do is I want to look at four things that we need to enlarge, that we need to restore or recapture if we are to appreciate the incomparable riches as they are. Incomparable riches. And the first is we need to enlarge our vision of brokenness. Enlarge our vision of brokenness. If you asked a person on the street what the problem, what the main problem with the world is, somebody might say ignorance. 
If we just had more education and more training and more, more equipping and, and, and development in the schools and outside the schools and trade schools and in one-on-one -on -one relationships, if we just had the problem of or the solution of education and information e eclipsing ignorance, then everything would be right in the world. Except for the problem is, you know, like I know some incredibly intelligent people that are very much still in development. Somebody else might say, well, the problem is inequity and equality. And, and of course, just like with ignorance, I would agree to a point, but it's like, but like, but the solution is not just equal resourcing because sometimes there's, that doesn't solve that real problem. Somebody might say, well, the problem is kind of like trauma and it's passed along from one family member to the other family member. And agree, I'd be like, yes, that's such a big problem. But if you fix that, it would not solve everything in the world. It's the, here's the important thing. I want to be very clear here. When the kingdom of God shows up in a place, it brings education and it pushes back against ignorance. When the kingdom of God shows up in a place, ignorance is eclipsed and education and training rises up. When the, that's why the church was the place that started the university, right? When the kingdom of God shows up in a place, Equity and equality starts to level up. The kingdom of God does justice and the kingdom of God does mercy. So people without have and with people that have are able to give to those without. That happens. When the kingdom of God shows up in a place, healing from past pains, is, is, it happens. But each of those things, ignorance, equality, and trauma, they're like, they're like the, 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 the fruits of really what this bigger issue called sin is. They're all the fruits of this bigger issue called sin. Peter uses these two words in this passage I just read. First is mercy. In God's mercy, because of God's mercy, he opens up. Because of God's mercy, because of his mercy. Mercy in the Greek just means a kindness to one that is in a desperate situation. And then at the end of a passage I read, he uses the word salvation. Salvation just means saving from danger. So Peter's understanding of our condition is not something that can be solved by the world's resources. Peter's understanding of our condition is something that can only be resolved from God's work himself. That we are broken at a core level and need more than a topical treatment, but an inward transformation. When we enlarge our view of our own brokenness, what happens is we end up not feeling bad about ourselves, but thankful to God. Because we recognize the depth and the length that God has went to to bring about our salvation and to offer his mercy. When we enlarge our sense of brokenness from what we see in the world or the news to what we see in scripture, we start to be thankful for the incomparable riches we've received. Second is we need to enlarge our vision of reality. Uh, Peter says that this inheritance is, is kept in heaven for you. What is heaven? Sometimes if you're just to watch television shows or, or kind of like some, you know, some maybe, maybe one of those cartoons where one of the cartoon characters passes away and they go floating up into heaven, we have this idea that heaven is kind of like maybe up there somewhere and it happens after you die. 
But scripture talks about heaven as different. Scripture talks about heaven as this current reality that intersects with our touch, feel, sense reality. And it's the place where God presently reigns. Okay? This is how heaven, or heaven is described in scripture. And so this inheritance is kept in heaven for us. The problem is, the reason why we need to enlarge our vision of reality is because we, can, we are so comfortable with things that we can touch, we can see, we can smell, we can, you know, we can feel, that we sometimes think that this is reality. The scriptures say that there is a actually truer reality that is in heaven. I love how C.S. Lewis describes this. In his book, The Great Divorce, I, I remember I was talking to somebody in the lobby after the first gathering, and uh, they said, when I was reading The Great Divorce, my wife came in and got really nervous really nervous. <laughs> and I said, don't worry, honey. It's not about what you think. It's not a great divorce. Um, <laughs> I thought it was funny. Um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which talks about uh, basically, a, it's like this guided trip through heaven. And uh, I love one of the scenes it describes where uh, one of the passengers in this voyage, this tour through heaven, he's He's walking out into heaven and he steps in the grass of heaven and the grass of heaven pokes at his feet and feels like needles. It's, it's stronger than earthly flesh. What Lewis is trying to describe is that, that though we don't see the heavens right now, if we, don't, we don't often interact with it in a touch, see, sense way. It is actually more real than us currently. It's more real. And here's the thing, when we enlarge our vision of reality to understand the place heaven plays in it, we recognize that we have been saved from spiritual darkness, brought into the kingdom of light, the one who is crowned with victory after doing away with the prince of darkness himself so that we live with him and our destiny is certain. When we understand and we enlarge our vision of reality, we can appreciate the incomparable riches we've received. Third, we need to enlarge our vision of time. We don't really have a, a sense of history or a real strong sense of destiny. We have a sense of this moment. And oftentimes, even in the moment, we are distracted. Scripture, in fact, verses 10 through 12, it talks about how the salvation that we've already described was like long anticipated and the prophets were, were longing for it and wanting it, wanting it, even though they didn't know when it was going to come. And Peter says that you guys are the recipients of this. But here in, in this passage too, he wants them to know that it's this, this, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's protected. It's in this custody waiting to be released uh, in the correct time. And so there's this history that we have to appreciate that that history is climaxing in the person of Jesus, that we are recipients of something that all history was, was holding its breath for, and that, that our life is brief when we look about the vastnesses of eternity. And so when we, we understand the, the richness and large our vision of time from this just one moment that we often get distracted in, to that all of history was longing for the reality of Christ, and that we're recipients of it, and then we have a destiny called eternity that, that this brief life just can't even hold 
hold a flame to when we understand and enlarge our vision of time, then we can start to again appreciate the incomparable riches that we've received. And fourth, we have to enlarge our vision of family. This is an interesting one. If you're with us last week, you heard me talk about how Peter is writing to people that are being ostracized. You ever been ostracized? Has nothing to do with an ostrich. <laughs> to be ostracized means you're kind of like, you don't get that job, because, not because of your, your you, don't, you don't have the right competencies or whatever. It's because something in you is being the, set, the, the focus of unnecessary, unkind, critical reflection. It means that your family kind of pushes you to the margins. It means you kind of have limited social advancement because of your, who you are. And so Peter is writing to people that are being ostracized because of their faith in Jesus. Throughout the book, it's referred to as a fiery trial. It's referred to as, as, a, as, a, as a, a, a difficult ordeal. And the interesting thing is, is that Peter, many scholars believe is keying into this when he uses the term of inheritance. There's one scholar specifically, Karen Jobes, she, she says, Peter no doubt uses the word inheritance because many in that community that he was writing to had been disinherited. Peter wants them to know that they have a different inheritance that can't be taken away. This one's it's imperishable, it's unspoilable, it's unfading. Peter wants them to know when he says new birth, yes, that this is a spiritual reality that has happened by the work of Christ, but it's also your birth family may think of you differently because of your commitment to Jesus. But you also have a new birth connecting you with your heavenly father and bringing you into a new family. There, it is said that in the first century, in the second century, there was no greater proof from the resurrection but that Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female, would all gather together to worship the same God. That was a proof of the resurrection. Enlarge your vision of family. I love Psalm 68, 6, where it says, he puts the lonely in families. When you enlarge your vision, when you realize that this is your, this is you, you start to realize, oh, I'm, I'm the recipient of some incomparable riches. Here's the cool thing. When we know, when we start to get a sense of these incomparable riches, it will provoke what I'm calling resilient joy. Resilient joy. A lot of people writing about resilience right now and a lot of people trying to grow in resilience. Resilience, if you're unfamiliar with that word, it just simply means how quickly you get back off the ground when you get knocked down. Everybody gets knocked down in life. If you haven't, uh, sorry, it's coming. And so that's why over the last two years, there's been lots of getting knocked down. Amen, right? Amen by myself. All right. Uh, and so people are looking at resilience. They're trying to figure out like, okay, how, do you, how does somebody become more resilient? How does a community become more resilient? 
How does an individual become more resilient? How does a family become more resilient? How does a city become more resilient? How does a country become more resilient? When we get knocked down, how do you get back up more quickly? In fact, as a board, a ministry board here at Anchor, we're reading a book called Tempered Resilience, which is all about like growing as a resilient community because we want at our highest level of leadership at Anchor to be growing in this understanding of how do we become resilient? Well, when we understand the incomparable riches, we, become, we, we develop this resilient joy. Verses six and seven read like this. In all this, you greatly rejoice. So Peter's saying, as you take note of everything you've been given, as you reflect on that, you greatly rejoice. Though, if we can get that back on the screen, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Take note of this. Peter, what Peter's doing here, he's, 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 what he's doing, it's, it's, it's actually, this is kind of an aside, but Peter is not minimizing the pain they're experiencing. Don't you see that? In all this, though for, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. He's not minimizing their pain. He's not saying, well, I had it worse than you back in my day. You know, they really did this to you. He's not saying that. He's saying what you're experiencing is hard, He's not minimizing the pain. What he's trying to do is maximize their vision, right? The way we care for people in pain is not by minimizing their pain. It's in maximizing their vision. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that to the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed goes on here in a second, but we'll pause there. Um, you may know the, the um, Roman philosopher Seneca, and Seneca, Seneca um, was interested in how he could become more resilient. And so he looked at his life, and he realized he was a wealthy person. And so rather than thinking that would be a source of resilience, he recognized that his wealth was actually a vulnerability for his resilience. Because all somebody needed to do was to take his wealth away, and all of a sudden his source of joy would be diminished, so he wouldn't be resilient. And so he saw his wealth as an impediment to his resilience, an interesting way to look at it. And so every day what he, what he wanted to do and what he decided to do is that every day I'm going to wake up and and I'm going to, in my head, relinquish all that I own. I'm not going to actually do it, but I'm going to, in my head, relinquish all that I own. So if it's anything is taken away from me, then I am still comfortable in who I am and with what I have. And it's interesting, you know, like, uh, in some ways that's admirable. Christians go farther, though, than that. A Christian can wake up in the morning and recognize, a Jesus follower can wake up in the morning and recognize, all that I have is God's. You might even just kind of use that as a morning thing. All that I have is God's. But we even go farther than that. Because we recognize that no matter what, we have an inheritance that cannot be taken away because it was given by God. So all that I have is God's, but then ultimately I know that I have an inheritance. Take away what you want. I have an inheritance that can't be taken away. When you get that, as Peter is wanting the recipients of his letter to get, as you get this, this you could call a relinquishment, a relinquishment and a relishing. You relinquish conception, you relinquish all you have to God. God, all I have is yours. And then you relish what God has freely given to you. Then you become resilient. 
Then you develop resilient joy. Peter goes on, he says, though you have not seen him. You might think of Thomas and Peter. Jesus, or Thomas and Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are those who have believed but not yet seen. Though you have not seen him, what? You love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Mark that, inexpressible. Have you ever had something where you've experienced something and you're like, like you, you talk to somebody else and they're like, well, tell me about it. You're like, well, you just had to be there. Inexpressible. This is what Peter is talking about. But it's not an inexpressible fleeting joy. It's an inexpressible glorious joy. The word glorious, doxa, means heaviness, weightiness. So this inexpressible and weighty joy. Why? Because you are receiving the salvation of your souls. The word salvation, this present tense thing that you are seeing your life be transformed. Some of you have experienced this where you've looked at, your, you've overcome an addiction you've never thought you were able to overcome. You've understood an identity issue as, as healed and transformed. You've been able to look in the mirror and see someone that is loved by God. Somebody has come up to you and said, hey, you, you seem like you've grown in this area. What is that? It's this inexpressible and glorious joy that's connected to it. Why? Because you're receiving this salvation of your souls. In some corners of the church, sometimes we've said salvation happens at one point. It certainly does, but it begins at one point and continues on. Salvation is really this lifelong thing of, of justification, sanctification, and glorification is we look more and more like Jesus and Jesus transforms us and Peter wants the recipients of his letter to understand that this joy that you're feeling in the middle of the suffering, you don't get the job and you still have a smile on Like how, how do you do that? Why? Peter says, because you're receiving the salvation of your souls. It's like this river is coming into your very life and it's giving you life in a way that the world can't do anything about it. The world can't turn that river off. This is what Peter's saying. Anchor, if I could tell you one thing in this moment, it would be this. Study the riches you have. Enlarge your vision. Don't let the world set the terms on your vision. Enlarge your vision. And then you will experience resilient joy. The band can come up right now. I think that um, the more we're marked by this resilient joy, the more people will uh, be dumbfounded by us in a holy sense dumbfounded as they look in and they're, huh? The more we'll reflect Jesus. We get to celebrate communion. We do this every week. And uh, it's just a, a, a time where we look back to that last supper with Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus, he, would, he took the bread there and he, he broke it. And he says, this is my body. It's given for you. He's giving the disciples this thing to taste and to touch because in this taste-to-touch world, we need, we need kind of this sacrament, this portal, this window into the realities of our riches. And Jesus generously said, hey, here's something to taste and touch, to remind yourself and your very body of the riches I've given you. This is my body. It's given for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood. It's shed for you as he took the cup. 
It's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant in my blood and my body. As long as, do this together as long as you as long as you gather in remembrance of me. As we as you're invited, maybe maybe for the first time, if you're not yet a Jesus follower, this could be the time where you said, I want to experience the incomparable riches. I want to know that resilient joy. This could be the point. You, you say yes in your heart, you tell a friend that you're with, and you come forward to receive communion. Okay. This is what it's about. That Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we might experience his incomparable riches. And there is healing uh, prayer, and there's prayer for any type, not just healing prayer. There's prayer for, for, for anything you need, any prayer need that you come in for, we want to pray for it. And so there's those black walls, there's, those are places where you can come forward and people have been trained in prayer. You can receive prayer. Don't leave anchor before getting prayer for something you need. And as we step into this last song and communion, I want to just pray for all of us. So you might just close your eyes, take a deep breath. You know what's happening in your world. God knows what's happening in your world. And just be present to God. Lift up what's happening in your life to him. Spirit of the living God, would you come in our midst? Spirit of the living God, would you come in our midst? Help us to trust you are here. Jesus, would you be glorified in our lives? Would we might, would, that we might experience and know the incomparable riches that you have freely given us and that we might, as a result, be marked by resilient joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.